understanding asymmetric defense. Most of those tools are a lot cheaper to develop and employ than of military capability. Family planning in China. So it wasn't just the quantity of births they were trying to control, it was also the quality. They're trying to engineer a particular type of population. And women in leadership. So the creation of an inclusive and diverse workforce was really essential for me to lead with the style and the approach that I lead with. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. First up, Anastasia Capetis is joined by John Schaus, Senior Fellow of the International Security Program at the Centre for Strategic International Studies. They explore the concept of asymmetric power and deterrence, how it is used by different actors, and how the US and its allies should respond. John, thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's a very cold and bleak camera morning here. How is it where you are? Uh, good morning, Anastasia. Uh, this evening in Washington is beautiful. It's about 75 degrees and sunny with limited humidity. So we've traded uh, a muggy summer for, for a nice spring. Well, that sounds wonderful and a, a perfect kind of weather for discussing all things asymmetric. So Australia's been thinking more recently about how it might change its military thinking to look at aspects of asymmetric power. It's kind of been noticing that its international environment has been getting more asymmetric. There's a lot of asymmetric action out there um, and thinking about how uh, Australia can uh, leverage some of its own asymmetric advantages. Kind of in that context, can you outline your thinking on asymmetric power and deterrence? And why do you think such a concept is really important for us to understand now? I think that that is a great topic. And one of the things that is very easy to do in the defense community, at least in Washington, is to think about how we operate our military forces and assume other countries would operate them the same way to fight the same war that we're planning for. But a smart adversary is not going to do that. They're going to look for weak points. They're going to look for their own advantages, and they're going to try and exploit those. So if we look at the countries in the Indo-Pacific, for example, there are countries that have very large missile arsenals, that have very large navies, that have very large air forces. Uh, but that doesn't mean they would use them the same way that a U.S. force or an Australian force would. They'll have their own objectives and their own strategies to get there. So thinking through how can we use uh, the technology, the capability, uh, and the people we have to achieve objectives in ways that the potential rivals wouldn't expect. So you're saying we really need to be much more creative and imaginative about how we use the forces that we that we already have. Absolutely. And also how we imagine creating new forces for tomorrow and next year and five years from now. If If we are still focused on the same formations with the same equipment, but better, we become an easy target, both to attack and to deter. But if we use new capabilities, and especially use uh, old or new capabilities in new ways, we'll be a much more effective force, and it'll cause potential rivals at least a moment of hesitation to think about, do I really understand how this will play out? And I think if we start looking at uh, specific capabilities like uncrewed systems, so unmanned air systems, uh, on the water systems and subsurface systems, both for sensing, uh, for potentially uh, putting them out in the water and letting them wait 
for a opportune moment to to activate, whether to listen, to watch, to threaten, to shoot. Uh, all of those things are great capabilities that add to deterrence, but aren't necessarily provocative. And what about all the kinds of um, other uh, tools of state, if you like, that adversaries have been using in the grey zone? Is that something, again, that we should be thinking about? It absolutely is. Most of those tools are a lot cheaper to develop and employ than a military capability. Uh, And they involve a lot less political risk. We aren't putting lives on the line necessarily. Australia is in the midst of its own uh, sorting through being uh, put into a gray zone corner, if you will, where China has curtailed uh, wine imports, beef imports, and a range of other products. Why don't we think a little bit more creatively, both from Canberra, but especially in Washington? Why hasn't Washington stepped up to uh, create a way to quickly import uh, the the non-purchased wine that China would normally buy. It would allow the United States to, to benefit from great Australian wine. We could mitigate the impact of China's efforts to, to uh, impose costs on Australia uh, for the audacity of asking for an investigation, let's be clear. Uh, but then it would also, Australia benefits and that the consequences China tries to impose wouldn't happen. And so all of those things together They require a little bit of creativity, like you said, and they require us to operate differently than we have gotten used to. So I guess it requires us uh, as allies to operate more cooperatively and in a more integrated way. Is that possible? Uh, It's possible. Absolutely. It won't be easy because it will require changes in how the United States thinks about problems, how we communicate our thinking about problems. And the same from Australia. Australia will probably have to operate a little differently. And I think uh, potentially the hardest part wouldn't be a military to military change or even a, you know, a, a foreign ministry to State Department change. It's really the, the legislative process, the, the governing process, where in the United States, the Congress would have to get involved in change the laws and the authorities that the U.S. government operates under and would have to create flexible rules to allow things like rapid importation of Australian wine. Those, those mechanisms aren't, aren't part of our process yet. And Australia, I'm sure, would have similar uh, difficulties to overcome as well. What about in the, sort of the disinformation and narrative space? How good are we as allies at at playing in that space compared to adversaries? I think we're very good in, at playing in that space against ourselves. Uh, if we if we look at how our media environment has balkanized, at least again in the United States, we have great social media bubbles and information clusters where we we stop hearing different perspectives and. Adversaries can use that. Russia has used that uh, consistently in U.S. elections. I think China is getting better at using tools to to convey disinformation and to foment uh, this uh, antagonism we feel towards the other side of a political divide. I don't think we have found a good way to either respond domestically or deploy similar tools in, in their systems nor is that necessarily one of our strengths, uh, right? If we, if we look to how the United States and allied countries operated throughout the Cold War, 
against a very closed and information resistant Soviet Union, that it wasn't by trying to spread disinformation. It was by actively trying to spread information, creating a credible source of external information, news, uh, science, research, that was hard to access from the inside. And that by itself created a corrosive uh, impulse within the Soviet system where people were regularly made aware that the information that they thought was false from their government really was. Uh, and I think leaning on the truth is probably more effective for us than trying to sow disinformation. So you're thinking here things like Voice of America, uh, but to some extent also America's cultural industries like Hollywood, for example. I think those are great tools. Voice of America, at least. Hollywood isn't really a tool. It's just a manifestation of you know, a free and open society that likes good movies. Well, sometimes good movies, sometimes not movies. Um, but Australia similarly has uh, great broadcasting, great journalism, uh, and the ability to not just put it out there, but get it in the hands of people who are interested. And that's where I think uh, the United States, Australia, other countries in the region have to invest a little bit more time and effort to think about how to get that into China, where we're, you know, there's clear limitations on what can go in in print. There's the Great Firewall of China that limits uh, internet access and censors material before it even gets into China. It limits searches in English and Chinese. So how do we how do we work through those limitations that China has created for its own people to access independent information? Just to backtrack just a slightly, I've been reading about Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin's concept of integrated deterrence. It seems to be a change from previous kind of doctrinal postures. What does it mean? I think we're still waiting to see exactly what integrated deterrence means. As I look at it, I, I see two facets that integrated tries to bring to the idea of deterrence. The first is uh, Lloyd Austin is a Secretary of Defense. So how does he order and organize his department in an integrated way to achieve deterrent effects? Um, another way to think about that in a military sense is jointness, but it's more than just the military, there's civilian components of defense as well. So I think that's one element of integrated. But then the second level is how is the defense department's deterrence efforts integrated into broader uh, national level deterrence efforts that probably will be led by the White House and the State Department, but will have economic and trade and public diplomacy and informational components, where the Defense Department is probably in a supporting role rather than a lead role. Is this somewhat of a kind of, again, a bit of a rediscovery of uh, some of the concepts that uh, the US and allies were using in the Cold War and previously? Or also, is, is it really something that we sort of, we knew how to do in the past, but we kind of have to dust off some of those skills? I think intellectually, we absolutely have to dust off the thinking about how do we go about doing those things? How do we set objectives? How do we create meaningful plans to achieve those objectives? But I think it's more than just dusting off because the world is different. It, the way we operate together as an alliance and with other countries is different now than it was 30 or 40 years ago. And the kind of challenges we face 
are different, uh, right? China, Russia, Iran are different now than they were in 1986. And the tools we have available to us, uh, we're still grappling with what does it mean to be operating in cyberspace or operating in the information environment when it's not purely in print. What are the limits also of asymmetricality? If we're, if all sides are engaged in this sort of permanent uh, world of destabilization, isn't that dangerous too? You're absolutely right. If, if we're all trying to destabilize, there, there's a huge amount of risk. But I think asymmetric efforts and asymmetric deterrence don't have to be, as a base case, they don't have to be destabilizing. They can involve uh, things that are confidence building, but deterrent. And I think we saw uh, some of that happen in history as well, where the US and the Soviet Union engaged in arms control negotiations. They created rules that they held themselves accountable to uh, about how to use or create or employ certain very dangerous weapons. And by having a clearer idea of how each side developed and planned to use those weapons, uh, it was deterrent. You knew the other side was serious, but it was also confidence building because you could, you could see, okay, I now have a better sense of how they would use it and where. So I don't accidentally trip over those lines. And I think there are things we could do today that would help get us closer to that. Things in cyber, things in uh, economic engagement, where we have to reestablish or establish for the first time what those rules between countries might be. Just again, at the same time that all this is happening, there's all this uh, uh asymmetric jostling, we're also dealing with an existential threat that all countries share, and that is climate change, which is in itself destabilizing the current fabric of geopolitical power. What are some of the challenges and opportunities for asymmetry, if you like, um, in that context? Wow, that is a phenomenal question. I'm sorry to think on it, you, but just what no, would it's you, great. you gut thoughts on that? Yeah. So a couple of quick thoughts on that. Um, I think in terms of confidence building and creating uh, areas of cooperation, climate change is a great opportunity where uh, both by setting standards for carbon emissions, for holding each other accountable to those and, and being public with one's domestic constituencies, there's, there's a net positive there, uh, assuming that progress continues to be made. And I think uh, cooperating on on deploying those technologies to emerging uh, economic powers, right? Whether that's India, places in Africa, uh, the Middle East, where renewable power uh, will probably need to be adopted at a much higher rate to lower carbon emissions. Uh, I think that's a net positive for geopolitical competition. At the same time, one could easily see those same tools being used as competitive tools gaining market access to emerging economies by giving them better renewable technology, by helping them deploy, employ, manufacture all of those products and, and help them step into the global supply chain and, and global markets. And I think that that is a legitimate space where countries could compete. To it. It, It's positive some competition. You're competing for access and influence, but you're also competing to accelerate the pace of uh, achieving lower emission, if not net zero emission economies. Do you think the Biden administration is aware of some of these angles? 
Uh, I am very confident that there are people in the administration who are thinking about this. I'm confident that there are even more people outside of the administration who are advocating for these types of ideas uh, in greater specificity than I can offer. The question really will be, how much bandwidth is there to pursue these ideas while managing all of the other issues that are in front of uh, the United States right now. That is an extraordinary challenge, it is true. We've, we're facing a lot of systemic and structural crises at the same time, um, and Australia is, is, is trying to think about how it can stretch itself to do those things too. John, we might leave it there, but thank you so much for just a really fascinating tour around the idea of asymmetricality um, and some of its future possibilities. Anastasia, thank you for having me. This has been fun. In May this year, the Chinese government announced a three-child policy, an initiative designed to help increase birth rates in China. Daria Impiombato is joined by Leita Hong Fincher, adjunct assistant professor at Columbia University and author of Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. They discuss the three-child policy, as well as coercive family planning policies in Xinjiang and feminism in China. Thank you so much, Olivia, and thank you, Le Tao, for being on our podcast today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Daria. Thank you for having me. So today, I just wanted to have a chat with you about women's rights in China since they have been getting more attention by international media once again, first following an onslaught of online harassment that has particularly targeted women activists um, and had increasingly sexist and misogynistic undertones, but also um, following the introduction of the what is now known as the three-child policy uh, by the Chinese Communist Party, um, which is um, growing increasingly worried about China's declining population growth. Um, so the three-child policy is one of the party's many efforts to instrumentalize women's bodies to pursue the country's development goals and ultimately um, stay in, in power. What I found really interesting from uh, your analysis later was the concept of population quality in terms of population controls and, and policies to control women's womb. So um, could you give us um, a, your interpretation of what the party means by population quality? Yes. So um, just in relation to population planning policy, you know, a lot of people know about the decades-long so-called one-child policy um, that was most people think of that that is just being designed to control the number of babies that were born. But at the same time, the Chinese government also really highly valued uh, the idea of population quality. So it wasn't just the quantity of births they were trying to control, it was also the quality. They're trying to engineer a particular type of population. And this has been an ongoing effort for many, many years. So I specifically started analyzing the idea of population quality or as they call it in Chinese, um, when I was writing what became my book, Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. Um, and I was looking at the origins of this term, or leftover women, which uh, was defined by uh, Chinese state propaganda as 
being a, a woman um, who is in her late 20s, who is educated, urban, and single. And when I was researching the origins of this term, I came upon this the Chinese State Council, which uh, issued an edict about China's population in 2007, at the beginning of 2007. And it said that um, China's population quality is too low, um, effectively. It, it said that China urgently needed to upgrade population quality, that, that needed to be a key goal to address what it called unprecedented population pressures. And in, in this long edict, you know, it outlined the pressures China is facing. One of the pressures was the sex ratio imbalance where there are more boys born for girls. And part of that is because of uh, history of female in infanticide or sex selective abortion because of the um, favoritism towards boys. And um, the state council said in 2007 that you know, the sex ratio imbalance causes a threat to social stability. Um, and so it, it it, when it said that China needs to upgrade population quality, this needs to be a key goal. Right after that, the Chinese state media started bombarding everybody with all this propaganda about how there were too many, quote unquote, leftover women. These are single, educated women, um, and that this was a real uh, problem for Chinese society. And, and there were all these articles and cartoons just insulting educated single women in their 20s, trying to push them into getting married. Um, and the emphasis back then in 2007 and then even in the early like 2010, 2011, the emphasis then was on pushing these women into getting married. But at the same time, they also talked about how, okay, one of the reasons why um, the government is so concerned about these young women getting married is that then when they're married, they can have a child. And at the time, the one child policy was still in effect in 2007. So at the time, you know, these women were only largely able to have one child. Yeah, yeah, actually, that is um, fascinating. And I know that this this term and the translation from the Chinese um, terms is still very contested, um, but it, it does sound a lot like a almost a fascist uh, policy, really, of engineering population and uh, Han purity, um, which takes me uh, to the... The report that my colleagues here at ASPI wrote uh, on declining birth rates in Xinjiang, a western region of, of China, where um, uh, majority uh, Uyghur people live. Um, in their report, uh, Nathan Rooser and James Steibold, they do talk about these efforts by the Communist Party to in increase the Han population in Xinjiang and um, decrease the Uyghur population in the region. In fact, while Han women are being pushed to have more babies, um, Uyghur women can end up in re-education camps if they have what the party calls illegal um, children. So how, how does this fall into, um, into this picture? It's all part of, again, China's efforts to 
engineer a particular kind of population. And, and at the same time, when you, when you get into these um, atrocities that are ha- taking place in Xinjiang with the mass detention of Uyghurs um, and Kazakhs um, as well, women are really a, a big focus of this because while the Chinese government is trying to get so-called high-quality Han Chinese college-educated women to have more babies, and just very recently, China passed the three-child policy. So that policy is really aimed at the um, so-called high-quality part of the population, the majority Han Chinese population. But meanwhile, what you have happening in Xinjiang, and this has been going on for a while as well, is rhetoric about Uyghur births being low quality, that those babies are considered to be a threat to social stability if there are too many of those kinds of low quality births. And in fact, I wrote about that as well because it really is eugenics in action. And I wrote about that as well in my um, second book, Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. So even before um, there was this mass effort, which which has been documented um, in your publication as well as, you know, other scholarly work like by Adrian Zenz, um, about forced sterilizations, uh, Uyghur and Kazakh women. Even before then, a few years before, there was this rhetoric in the state media, you know, about how um, there were too many uh, births happening that were low quality among the Uyghur population or ethnic minority population. And that this, you know, I'm quoting here that, um, this affects negatively affects not only the physical and mental health of children and women, but also the population quality that is Suja in the region, posing risks to social stability. Just on that concept of uh, social stability, I think that is um, interesting and can take us back to why uh, women reclaiming their rights um, to control their own bodies constitutes such a, a threat to these efforts by uh, the party. Um, And I guess the crackdown on on Chinese women activists that you depict uh, in your latest book, Betraying Big Brother, is still going on today. Um, So I just wanted to uh, ask you, uh, what are the latest developments of this movement? And what is, um, you know, women's social status in China like today? Just before China uh, unveiled this new three-child policy, which is a really big policy change, just before, in the weeks before that, there was a huge anti-feminist campaign on uh, Weibo, or China's version of Twitter, and WeChat as well, where they were deleting a, quite a lot of dozens of um, feminist social media accounts. And some of the accounts that they deleted were feminist accounts that were specifically calling on women to uh, turn their backs on marriage and having children with men in particular. Um, And so you can see that that particular kind of behavior, calling on young women to not marry and not have children, is actually a direct threat to the government's objective 
of getting these women, these are Han Chinese women, you know, who are considered to be quote unquote high quality, you know, trying to get them to have more babies. And that's one element of it is that feminism in China is seen as a threat by the Communist Party in part because um, because it is advocating the emancipation of women. Um, and it's also you know, calling for LGBTQ rights, um, which is related to you know, the rights of women. It's not just women. But the Communist Party sees that as a threat. It's directly in conflict with this project of, you know, trying to raise the birth rates among the Han Chinese majority while lowering the birth rate among the minority, you know, Uyghur or other ethnic minority population, which is seen by the party as being very destabilizing. And even, you know, the state media even describes those births among Uyghurs or ethnic minorities as, as being, you know, a threat to social stability. So, and that's just one element of, of the threat. It's, it's overall the, the idea that feminism is, is also calling on women to just free their minds and um, they, sh you know, women should be free to do whatever they want to. Um, they, they shouldn't have to get married. They shouldn't have to have children. But I, I write a lot about, you know, how patriarchal authoritarianism is at the center of the Communist Party's efforts to control the entire population. And so feminism is, poses a real threat in many different ways. So on, on one side, we have the party sort of increasingly raising, ramping up effort to clamp down this movement um, and, and women uh, at the same time uh, going through another like uh, awakening, like you call it. Um, one last question I had for you, Leta, was whether you see a future of, of the movement uh, or whether you're optimistic about it? Well, I mean, it's incredibly hard to be optimistic about anything happening in China now. Things are obviously very grim, um, particularly in Xinjiang, where you have certainly atrocities that are taking place that have been described as genocide by a lot of governments, including the U.S. government. But that said, I mean, I have to say I am continually amazed at the resilience of this feminist movement happening in China. And it has to be said that the feminist activists are primarily Han Chinese educated women. And so, you know, they are clearly much more privileged than ethnic minority women and in particular Uyghur women. But this is a movement, the feminist movement that is, has had a lot more staying power and resilience and adaptability than other kinds of rights movements that have come and gone in China. This is a movement that is just kind of continues to endure. And so the latest setback was, you know, over a month ago on social media when the um, when these feminist social media accounts were deleted. But I don't think this is the end of the feminist movement. I think that the activists have a very large, really committed community. Um, and, and I don't think we've seen the last of them. That is a very positive note to end with. Thank you so much again, Leta. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Finally, we are delighted to share an interview from ASPE's Women in Defence and Security Network. Major General Cheryl Pierce, who was recently Force Commander of the UN Forces in Cyprus, speaks with Lisa Sharland about leadership during COVID-19 and offers advice for emerging female leaders based on her experiences working in the ADF and in a multinational force. Welcome to the series, Major General Pierce. Thanks, Lisa. So I thought we might start today and talk a little bit about your experience serving as Force Commander in the UN mission in Cyprus. You were there for two years. You were overseeing or commanding more than 800 military personnel that were serving as part of that mission. How did your leadership style contribute to serving as the Force Commander during effectively what were these unprecedented times with sort of COVID starting to spread during the time that you were serving there? And what leadership attributes do you think are most important for serving in an environment like that? Thanks, Lisa. I look back uh, in part of the leadership team and UNFASIP, which is the United Nations Forces in Cyprus, uh, 800 were military and there were just under just over 200 based of police and civilians. So together we certainly worked um, collaboratively and then had to work towards and through COVID and they are still sitting within that same um, environment now. For me, um, leading through COVID, uh, I was very fortunate. I'd already been in country for 14 months prior to COVID um, hitting Cyprus and I had already established um, my relationships with the senior leadership of uh, the mission. In addition, when you talk about the 800 military, they were made up of 14 different nations where the majority English was not a first language. So the creation of an inclusive and diverse workforce was really essential for me to lead with the style and the approach that I lead with. And also to create the framework of, of good governance and accountability through all. All of my commanders had been in country for about four months of their 12-month tenure, so we had established those relationships. And when we talk about COVID um, hitting Cyprus, it was a wave. It came through Europe first. So we we're getting the early information through WHO, UN headquarters, and also the Republic of Cyprus to understand what our parameters were. So we had to be really agile we had to be work quickly to understand and to develop protocols, both preventive and in response plans. We led for the mission because we're the greater force and military are generally good planners. So when I talk about our operation there, we had to conduct 24-7 ops. And that meant we had to patrol, we had a continual patrolling program, we had to establish and continue engagement with the two opposing forces, the Turkish forces and the Cypriot National Guard. Um, and also establish and engage with the civil community. So for that, we, we couldn't stop and lock down through COVID. Um, additionally, the camps were quite austere. They were, we had um, four and eight men and sometimes up to even larger living conditions with limited ablutions. So the, there was a high risk. So the protocols that we had to put in place were really important and for me, the attributes um, in leadership on how we worked through this was focused on the empowerment, the trust, respect, and that was key and I had developed that. The things that I had to really focus on and my style didn't change, I just had to emphasise in a couple of different areas. Agility was key first up, agility in communications, really understanding and listening and to each different nation had a different approach. They all had national 
agendas. 14 different uh, nations also had their position on it. Um, so we had to come up with our preventative measures, how we could continue operations, how we could work together. And as things became locked down and we often didn't have as much face-to-face, how we could communicate. And that was that built on trust and respect. And so that was just heightened um, and really that good communication. Also, we're very cognizant of reputational risk as a UN and uh, that the fear by Republic of Cyprus, by a host nation of being the spreaders. So that one, we're very conscious of um, our protocols and being very transparent and engaging and, and for me to can be communicating with both the opposing force commanders and really establishing and those relationships. The thing that I found was what I really dug deep over time was the empathy and perspective and trying to think about it from each and everyone's um, perspectives. Not only from my military force, and you've got different nations, Argentinians, Slovakians, and their relationships with their countries. Their families were home in a different country. So their fear for their families was, was real. And how do we get them to be able to communicate with their families? They couldn't get home. They were cut off, cut off from their home states. There was no movement. We were on lockdown from an island perspective. And so that was also difficult. So really engaging and having that level of empathy and listening to my commanders and what worked for them. Now, how each of the different forces worked was very different. They had different cultures. So respecting the cultures of each of the different nations and allowing the commanders to understand my intent and then work with what worked best. One size didn't fit all. And I worked with how we could do our protocols for COVID. Personally, I found it very exhausting over 12 months. It was hard. Um, I won't deny that. Um, it was lonely. Command is lonely. There was no socialisation. It was very um, uh, restrictive of what we could and couldn't do around work. And um, I drew back um, on friends, family, and I had a small Australian team and they were just my lifesavers in country. And uh, I have an, an enduring relationship with them now based off the off the back of what we've shared experience in the last really 24 months. I think as you pointed out there, I mean, command at times is a lonely experience, but then you go into a, a global pandemic where people are locked down, where you're isolated, it would, it certainly sounds only more challenging. I want to reflect back a little bit on your operational service overseas. You've served in Timor-Leste, um, in Afghanistan, in command roles, in, in some of those deployments. What have you learned from those experiences? What did you draw on um, in terms of preparing to serve in this in, in this mm. force commander role from those experiences previously that you've had with the ADF? And and what sort of, in terms of your service overseas, do you think have been some of the, the successes and some of the setbacks that you faced? No, thanks for that, Lisa. Look, I would say I was um, well prepared and um walked or stepped up to commander of the task um, group Afghanistan well. Everything through my career had my education, my training had prepared me for that environment. And I, f- I found that um, my focus and my the execution of the mission, um, whilst challenging, was as I thought it would be. I would say I was under underprepared or was not did not have the exposure in a in a UN environment. As a junior officer, it's about yourself, about your task and your role. 
as a senior leader within the UN, very different. And while academically I could prepare on Cyprus, I could prepare on the UN, um, I, the culture of both really um, thinking in hindsight now took me a long while. It was um, understanding the Cyprus problem in its depth and the emotion around it all um, took a while to, to really um, to feel. I'll call it a feel. Um, but also the UN culture, that's a very different beast in itself. And I had to really listen um, to my colleagues in the UN system, especially the permanent members, to understand how they apply the policy, how they conduct their relationships, how they conduct their work, and how did I then fit in and how could I um, value add in that, but also um, hold everybody accountable as a senior leadership so we can work together collaboratively as a mission. So the challenges for me really have been um, what I learned is about values. Um, I take them for granted and the value set that I have and how you then impose that in an international environment, um, both its strength is that when you have 14 different nations in a multinational force, you don't have any standardised language, you don't have a standardised um, training and, and um, procedures or special, you know, standing operating procedures. You base off of values about teams and trust and you work in, in that space. Um, but the hardest one also is you have an expectation of um, a values-based and a communication and a probably nearly um, an unconscious bias about the way you conduct operations. And that became also really having to challenge myself and my thinking and understanding, is my position right just because it's my position? And really to have the humility as a force commander, just because I am an Australian and this is the way I do it, is that the right way? And is that the only way? And to, to step back and really engage with my colleagues, engage with my subordinates and really listen to find out what is the best way. And sometimes um, an 80%, an agreement by 80% is a better outcome than you will do it my way. And because we have to continue to develop and grow as an organisation, whether it be ADF or whether it be um, in a multinational force. If you could go back to when you were an officer cadet, starting out in your career in Portsea, yeah. what advice would you give to yourself? Oh, look, just believe in yourself and back yourself. It's very hard when all you want to do is fit in. And as a female, you didn't want to raise your head, I call it above the parapet. You didn't want to be different. You just wanted to fit in. And I didn't use my voice enough. And that's the big one that I tell um, our next generation coming through is, you know, back yourself, believe yourself, use your voice. Your voice matters. It might be different. You might come from a different perspective, but that's what we're looking for, that diversity of thought. Major General Pierce, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you sharing your time and some of your reflections on leadership. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this extract. For more of this interview, please head over to Aspie's YouTube channel. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.